Welcome to the Word Encounter, episode 231, where today we'll be picking things up in the book of Romans, chapter 7. Uh, chapter 7, 8, and 9, particularly 8. Um, I mean, they're a struggle for me, i got to be honest. You know, some of the things Paul is trying to get across are very difficult for me to comprehend. And so I read them and read them and read them and read them, read other translations, read explanations. But sometimes things that he says the Lord is, is saying just aren't connecting with me at all times. And so uh, it's a, a, you know, a progress in the Lord. It's a progressive revelation of things. We don't get everything uh, that we would like to know in the time that we would like to know it is sometimes because I believe God reveals stuff to us as he feels we are ready to accept and handle. And so maybe there's some things here that I'm just not ready to uh, accept or handle. I don't know. Um, but as we go through this, I'm reminded in Isaiah where the Lord says, you know, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. For my, for my thoughts and my ways are as high above uh, the earth as the, um, or high above you as heavens are above the earth, you know. And so uh, that tells me that maybe there are some things that are just incomprehensible for me and I don't know. But um, with that, let, let's get into this. Um, chapter 7 says, an illustration for marriage. Since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over uh, someone as long as he lives? So Paul is saying the, the, the law only rules over somebody as long as they live. So he goes into an example for marriage. And he says that, you know, when a wife is married to a husband, and then if the husband dies, then the wife is now free from that, from that uh, covenant because the man is dead. Her husband is dead, and so she's free. And so if she were to marry somebody else, she would not be under the law. But if she did that uh, while her husband was still living, she would be accused and guilty of adultery. And so it says in verse 4, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. So it says, in the same way as my illustration, you know, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, he's saying that, uh, in my, like my illustration, you are now free from what you were committed to. It says, you belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that uh, we may bear fruit for God. And so he's saying that uh, when Jesus died and was, was risen, that you were um, no longer under the constraints or the dictates of the law. You were now free from that. You were now dead to that, see? You also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. See, so you're no longer married to the law, now you're married to Christ. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Verse five, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. It says here that the sinful passions were aroused through the law. <laughs> it, 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 you know, how many times have you um, not wanted to do something until you became aware of it and became uh, tempted by it? You know, all of a sudden, now that you're aware of it, now you want to do it, whereas beforehand, when you didn't know anything about it, it had no sway over you. In the same way uh, in the law, we're getting, well, let's just get into this. It says, uh, for when we were um, in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law, so your passions were aroused through the recognition of the law, were aroused through the recognition of something, were working in us to bear fruit for death. 
But now, let's see. Very fruit for death. Yeah. But now we have been released from the law since we are, have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the uh, newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Sin's use of the law. Verse 7. I'm going to tell you, Paul can start saying some things. It, says, it may seem like he's saying what, what's down is up, what, what's up is down. It can be very difficult, but let's go. It says, <clears throat> what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. So this makes sense. So Paul is saying, what should we say? Because before we were made aware of the law, we didn't sin. But once we became aware of the law and knew what sin was, then we sinned. So Paul is saying, so what should we say? You know, is the law sin? Because after all, if we didn't know about the law, then we wouldn't sin. Paul is saying, absolutely not. He's saying, but I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. If I was not made aware, then I wouldn't have known sin, then I wouldn't have sinned. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. That makes sense, right? In verse 8, in sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. See, sin is being spoken of as if, if it's a person. And I think sin is kind of the embodiment of the enemy, of the devil. And so it says, in sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced me... Uh, Produce in me coveting of every kind. And so when the law said, do not covet, Paul is saying in me, it produced this thing that, that wanted to covet everything. <laughs> For apart from the law, sin is dead. See, And so until Paul became aware that covetedness was sin, it didn't bother him. But as soon as he found out about it, he coveted everything. And then it says in verse 9, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. <laughs> before, I was made of a, uh, uh, before I was made aware of the law, I was alive. But now that I'm aware of the law, sin sprang to life in me, and now I'm dead. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. And so God is putting forth his, word, uh, his commandments, if you will, the law, and Paul is saying that uh, in doing so, sin rose in him, and therefore death came on him. In verse 12, so then, uh, so then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? That makes sense. That's a, that's a valid question. Absolutely not, he says. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that, uh, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. What the heck does that mean? But sin in order to be recognized as sin. So the law comes along so that sin can be called out, so that sin can be recognized as sin. And that sin produces death. Although uh, awareness of it was, was good and was meant to be good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful uh, beyond measure so that so that we would know so that we would recognize it okay so that we would know what it is that this that doesn't mean that we had to fall to it the problem of sin in us verse 14 for we know that the law is spiritual but i am of the flesh sold as a slave under sin for i do not understand what i am doing because i do not practice what i want to but i do what i hate paul is saying I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. 
<laughs> I do what I don't want to do. I sin. I do wrong. I do bad, you know, but I don't want to do that. He says, I want to do good. I want to do well. I want to do what is righteous, but I don't do that. See, so he's having this inner conflict. I can totally and completely relate to Paul here, completely. Now, if I do, now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. If I do what I don't want to do, in other words, if I recognize what I'm doing is not right and I don't want to do it, then I agree that the law is good. I'm in agreement with the law even though I'm doing wrong. Okay. In verse 17, now this can sound like an excuse. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin living in me. That sounds like the devil made me do it, right? But Paul is not saying the devil made him do it, but he is recognizing where this is coming from. Because he still has the choice to do it, right? Even though he doesn't want to do it, he still has the choice whether to do it or not to do it. <clears throat> but he's saying he's falling to the sin. And it's not, it's not his spirit, but it's his flesh that's giving over to the sin. In verse 18, For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is in me. In other words, my spirit is good. My spirit wants to do good, but my flesh, my flesh, my flesh is controlling me. For the desire to do what is good is, uh, is with me, but there is no ability to do it. But I'm too weak. My, my, my spirit, you know, my, I'm, I'm letting my flesh overpower me. I'm too weak to control my flesh. Verse 19, for I do not do, for I do, wait. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. It's my flesh that is taking over. I'm allowing my flesh to control me. So I discovered this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present within me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. He's saying, my spirit and my mind, I know what I want to do, but I'm giving myself over to, to my flesh because my flesh wants to do what my spirit and my mind don't want to do. And I'm allowing my flesh to win. And it says in verse 24, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. So Paul is saying, essentially, one of the things that we can do when we feel ourselves in that situation, when we're giving ourselves over to those things that we know we shouldn't be giving ourselves over to, that we should uh, bring to remembrance and recall why Jesus went to the cross, why he died, why he was resurrected. And we should envelop ourselves in the power of that resurrection so that we can overcome the evilness and the wickedness that wants to play out in our flesh. See, make no mistake about it. Sin is powerful. It is extremely powerful, but the blood of Jesus is more powerful. But do we access it? Do we lean on it? Do we wrap ourselves in it when we need to wrap ourselves in it in order to protect ourselves from falling into uh, uh, the sin that is present in front of our face? Remember, sin would not be, uh, uh, temptation would not be an element of sin unless there was some kind of pleasure attached to it. 
So there's something good about it that we're associating in our mind as being good anyway, even if it's just temporary. And so that has very strong muscles. We have to fight that. And the only thing that can consistently defeat that is the power through the name of Jesus. That's the only thing. Your willpower may do it once, may do it twice, but on the third time, it's going to fall. Your willpower can't do it consistently forevermore. It may have temporary victories, but it's not going to be long-lasting. Let's go into chapter 8, the life-giving spirit. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus was, uh, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. See, God set forth the law, but law, the law couldn't bring about righteousness because there was this thing called the flesh. Because as soon as you became aware of something, you wanted to do it. <laughs> and so the law could only point out to you what was wrong, even though knowing what was wrong did nothing but amp up your desire to do it. It says, he condemned, he being God, condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. And so he met kind for kind. The sin was in the way. So God sent, uh, excuse me, flesh was in the way. So God sent flesh, Jesus. He sent his own son in the flesh in order to confront the flesh as a sin offering. In order that the law's requirement uh, would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We all walk in the flesh, but we don't have to walk according to the flesh, according to the flesh's desires. We don't have to walk in that way. See, we can put those desires under our feet through the precious name of Jesus. We can't do it on our own because the, the, the temptation of the flesh is too great. For those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on things of the flesh, but those live according to the Spirit have their mind set on the things of the Spirit. When you live according to the flesh, you think about fleshly things, and that's all you think about. You think about making more money. You think about having a beautiful spouse. You think about, you know, uh, all kind of selfish stuff. and That's all your thoughts are dominated by selfish things. But when you think about spiritual things, the things of God, the things that pleases God, the sacrifice of Jesus, then your mind will start to be dominated by those sort of things. Now, the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. So if you continue this thought process and only thinking about the flesh, it leads to one place, death. But the mindset of the spirit, God, Jesus, is set on life and peace. That's where the destiny is. Verse 7, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it is unable to do so. When, when people's minds are set on the flesh, they are unable to, to do the things of God because they, they're blinded. They cannot even see the things of God. All they see are, thing, are, 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 are things in terms of, of natural um, uh, consequences and, 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 and natural uh, phenomena. They don't even consider God because they're unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. But you who are of God, you see things differently. Your perspective is different. You come to different conclusions. 
Verse 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. The Holy Spirit's ministries, verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We don't have to live according to man's laws. And I don't mean his, his, his legal laws. I mean, his, his, uh, I'm talking about like cultural laws. I'm talking about things that people think other people t- should do uh, according to man's intelligentsia. We don't have to live that way. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if, you, but if by the Spirit you put the death, the deeds of the body, you will live. This is talking about in eternity, see? If you don't accept the things of the flesh, if you don't accept uh, what may be considered common knowledge according to man's perspective, and you take on a heavenly perspective, then your outcome, the outcome of your life will be different. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons, and um, I would say also God's daughters. For you, now, this, this, this can be very difficult. So let, <laughs> For you who did not receive the spirit of, of, slavery, of slavery to fall back into fear, instead you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. There's a resonance within you that says, I know that I know that I know that I'm a child of God, because the Holy Spirit is witnessing with your spirit. And then it says in verse 17, And if children, also heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. If we, if we associate ourselves with Jesus' death, if we acknowledge his death, if we understand his death, see, if we come into congruence with his death, then it says we will also be glorified with him. You know, if we recognize and and, and associate with his suffering, we will also be glorified with him. It says from groans to glory, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So Paul is saying, look, as a, as a follower and a believer in Christ, there are going to be sufferings in this lifetime. We're going to experience them. They may be physical. They may be emotional. They may be mental. They may be theological. There are going to be sufferings. They may be relational. <laughs> We're going to pay a price. All of us are going to pay a varying a price. It's going to change from person to person to follow Jesus. But Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So our present day sufferings are going to be nothing compared to what we get in return. In other words, our return on investment is going to be tremendous. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Look, it says, for the creation eagerly awaits. Look around, everything around you, the earth, the sky, the stars, the moons, the waters, you know, the grounds, everything, creation. It says, awaits with anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In, in the hope, for creation was subjected to futility in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay. 
Creation recognizes that it is in a bondage of decay, and therefore it is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, to release creation from this bondage. It says to be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. In other words, God's children are going to usher in freedom into God's creation, and creation is awaiting this. This is something that's very difficult for me to even comprehend. <clears throat> but this is what the word says. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. It says even, you know, us creation is growing, but is groaning, but we're groaning too. You know, but we, we, we want our glorified bodies. These are our physical, natural bodies. But the word we'll see later on uh, in Corinthians, I, I believe that we're promised glorified bodies, the redemption of our bodies. It says in verse 24, now in this hope we are saved, but hope that is not seen is not hope. <clears throat> yeah, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? See, a lot of people, they don't give themselves an opportunity to exercise faith because they say, I need to see it to believe it. But if you see it, then you don't need faith to believe it because you can see it. See? And so, but it says in verse 24, now in this hope we were saved, but hope that we, uh, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await for it with patience. So we have this hope that we will see things. We haven't, we don't seen it yet. We don't, we haven't seen it yet. Uh, but that is why we exercise faith and we wait with patience. In verse 26, it says, in the same way, the spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. See, our spirit intercedes. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray. Uh, it, it may seem like a lot of people know how to pray and what to pray by the way they pray. But the word says we don't know what we're doing, essentially. He says, but the spirit intercedes with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For though he foreknew... For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, the thing that, that, that makes things confusing for me is this word predestined. Because if things are predestined, that means to me that it's already determined. And so we don't have a choice. It's already known what we're going to choose. And so if it's already known what we're going to choose, how do we choose? Again, his waves are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. The believers triumph. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He will... Uh, how will he not also grant us everything? If he gave Jesus up, how will he not? Think of how precious Jesus was to God the Father. And if he gave Jesus up, how will he not also grant everything to us? In other words, everything's on the table. Verse 33. 
Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or the sword? Even though it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. Uh, We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even though it is written that we are being put to death all day long and we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered, it says, no, 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 no. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's see if we can get through chapter 9. We drop down here. It says, God's gracious election of Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. It's not just by physical lineage. See? It's the children of the promise. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet uh, or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to the election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told um, the older one will will serve the younger one. And so what does this mean? And so before Isaac or or Esau was born, you know, promises were made. They had not done anything good or bad. (laughs) Nothing had been done before these children were born. But God was setting up the system. God knew what the situation was going to be because it was being created by faith, not by works. And then it says in verse 13, as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but hated Esau. And we see in verse 14, again, Paul is precipitating questions. He says, so what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? In other words, if God already knows what the situation is going to be, you know, he's already going to favor one son over the other. That doesn't seem to be fair because neither one has been born yet. Neither one has done anything yet. But it seems like the conclusion is already known. And so Paul is saying, so what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not, Paul says. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Wow. Okay. Verse 16, so then, uh, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in the whole earth. So essentially, he raised Pharaoh up to serve his purpose. He raised Pharaoh up in order to harden Pharaoh's heart. He used Pharaoh for his purposes. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. It doesn't sound like you have a choice in that matter, at least not to me. (laughs) Then he says, you will say to me, therefore, Why then does he still find fault? 
That's a good question. If God has set this thing up, he already knows what people are going to do. Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, you, no, on the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Oh. Well, what does form say to the worm who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from uh, the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? God can do what he wants with his own reasons because his, his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And for me, that's the end of the story. I, that's, all, that's all I know because I can't understand some of this stuff. And what if God wanting uh, to display his wrath and to make his power known? So what if he wanted to display his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience, patience objects of wrath uh, prepared for destruction? If he, what, if, what if he wanted uh, you know, to make his power known and his wrath known, but he exercised exceeding abundant patience? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand uh, for glory? What if he uh, exercised his patience for our sake? See, he wanted to display his wrath, how upset he was, but he held it back for our sake. You know what? I'm going to stop right here. We're going to pick it up in, in verse 30 tomorrow. Um, in Romans chapter 9. Read, read chapter eight, 7, 8, and 9 on your own and just meditate on it. <laughs> uh, that's all I can say. Stay safe. Be blessed. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And should he grace us with another day of life, we'll see you tomorrow in the next episode of The Word Encounter. Bye-bye.